Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, hello. This is Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. And uh, we've got a great show. This is show number eight of Buildings on Air, uh, where we talk about architecture and politics. And uh, we've got a really good one lined up. Um, First will be Doug Spencer. Uh, He'll be talking with us about his book, The Architecture of Neoliberalism. Then uh, we'll kick it over to Zach Mortise, who will join us in the studio later. And he'll be talking about the preservation crisis of African-American cemeteries uh, throughout the country. Um, And then maybe a little bit about the Obama Library, which is coming soon to Jackson Park. And then last on the show, we'll be joining, uh, we'll be joined by Ann Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm, where we'll answer your listener questions about buildings and architecture. Still time to get those in if you email the show at buildingsonair at gmail.com. All right, but first up is Doug Spencer. Doug, can you hear us? Uh, yes, I can. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Thanks so much for, for joining. Um, Oh, pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm really, really happy you could be here. I've been a, a fan of this book, I think, since it came out um, and, and was delighted to have another chance to read it through. Um, yeah, I think for a lot of the people, a lot of the people who are listening over the airwaves, um, they, they might be a little bit confused as to why architecture has any relationship with neoliberalism at all. Um, but I think this book does a really good job of uh, spelling it out in a, in a very uh, intelligent and accessible way. I also love that it doesn't shy away from naming the names. Um, and uh, instead of kind of following in this tradition of sort of architecture theory that's always trying to pull things out, it really is sort of tying things together. Um, these big ideas, yeah. economic history, um, and and the actual buildings uh, themselves. Um, but I, I guess to go back um, to the title, um, the architecture sure. of neoliberalism. The world world of the word neoliberalism um, is often used as a synonym for extreme capitalism. But as you point out in the book, that's not exactly the case. So I'm wondering if you could right. start by defining neoliberalism for us. And, and, and talking about that. Okay, I'll do my best. Uh, clearly, it's a, a challenging thing to do. You're exactly right to say that it's, it's often seen, even by those who might be sympathetic to the term and using the term neoliberalism, to, to stand, stand straightforwardly for the idea of a kind of extreme, uh, uncaring and cruel capitalism. And there certainly are kind of cruel and uncaring things about neoliberalism, but there's more to it than that. And there are things that make it, um, that, that, uh, I mean, it has some particular relationships to power that are not always straightforwardly uh, the same as what we might say of capitalism. So the, I think the main thing to say is that there's a real vision right back in the origins of neoliberalism of the relationship between the individual and the state and society and the economy. And the the core or one of the core beliefs of neoliberalism is that there cannot be any planning because the world is simply too complex for any human individual to grasp. Friedrich Hayek, one of the 
founding theorist of neoliberalism puts it very straightforwardly, um, and, and he says that human beings are necessarily ignorant. So if human beings on that basis attempt to plan, that's, that's sheer folly. And he also says that would lead directly to totalitarianism. Um, so his model of neoliberalism is that it's, it's what he would call cybernetic. So this means in more straightforward language that the individual is like someone steering a ship on the sea. Now you don't, you can't hope to control the waves or the weather, uh, or where the land is or where your harbour is. All you can do, do is steer your path as an individual in response to the environment you're given. Now for neoliberalism, that environment is not the sea, but it's the, the market. So you can't hope to control the market. Your, your place is just to steer your own individual project in relation to the market. And that's a given condition. It's inescapable. Hmm. Um, but, but for neoliberalism, of course, that's not presented by the neoliberalists as uh, a form of control, but as the very condition of your freedom. Right, it's which is interesting. Um, I think one of the other fascinating things that the book goes into is uh, it really is a serviceable sort of history of how neoliberalism came to be. Right, uh, there are these yeah. these thinkers um, uh, who really had a concerted project of how do we get these ideas um, into the halls of power, um, which Absolutely. obviously they've been successful at. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that history a little bit. Sure. So another thing people uh, would often say when they hear the word neoliberal use or read the word neoliberal is that it doesn't really exist and it's some phantom from the fevered, paranoid brain of, of the left. And it, and it isn't. It's a real thing. As you say, it is a, such a, a project, paradoxically, perhaps. Uh, it involves forms of planning and uh, a deliberate attempt to, to spread its truth. Those truths I've just kind of tried to, to capture briefly about the way in which the, the economic is the inescapable environment in which we have to live. Those, those truths are spread programmatically by having key individuals, uh, specialists, intellectuals, um, placed in, in academic and governmental positions. So it is exactly a, a type of project. Um, yeah. So, so this is, it's, it's kind of consciously um, produced and there's a conscious endeavor to make it a kind of inescapable truth that, that challenges the notion of uh, planning that you might find on the, the basis of a kind of Keynesian notion right. of the, the economy and the political. Yeah, because I mean, these these guys started think tanks and they uh, sure. got their ideas in front of the media, as, as you kind of detail. Um, I, yeah, and and 
I wonder, I think one of the most important reasons why that is important is because it yeah. makes the idea of overturning it something that's plausible, right? It's, it, it, yeah. it takes it away from being this inevitable fact, as you, as you said. And, you know, I think opens up some possibilities for the left to consider it and start to say, yeah. well, hey, you know, these people radically transform society over the course of, you know, 30 years um, by having yeah. a kind of concerted project and a grand overarching vision. And, you know, why, why can't we do that too on some level? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't um, proclaim myself to be any sort of uh, specialist in, in the political. Um, but, but certainly I, I agree with what you say. It does open up possibilities and uh more humbly, perhaps, I suggest that what I'm trying to achieve in the book is to show a particular way in which neoliberalism operates on the ground, as it were, in order that that might be challenged right. as well. Yeah. And, and yeah, can you talk a little bit about like the kind of story behind the book? Uh, um, you know, you hinted at the motivations just now, but um, really, yeah. like, what was it? A, a book is an immense labor of love. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm sure there's um, a story. <laughs> um, well, it's a, a labor of anger as much as uh, a labor <laughs> of love, really. Um, so it did involve me, as you say, I name names, so I'll name some more names. So it did involve me reading Hayek at great length. I'm sorry. But at least he's a good writer. Um, and also had to read both volumes of Patrick Schumacher's The Autopoiesis of Architecture. Um, so I had to read a lot of stuff I, I disagreed with and that, that's uh, yeah, quite a lengthy process to go through. But really the motivation, I think, comes from being in the midst, working at the Architectural Association, for example, being at the midst, certainly in the midst, certainly when I started working there um, about 12, 13 years ago, of a great enthusiasm for ideas of um, spontaneous orders, complexity theory, and the philosophy of um, some French thinkers called uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, and a, an appropriation of, of their thought and the ideas from so-called complexity theory that presented certain architectural forms and, and strategies as essentially progressive. So that always this notion that if you are breaking down boundaries, if you're making space smoothly connected, if you're making things fluid, if you seem to be opening up spaces in some way, then that's always a, a progressive move. Now, one, I, I don't think that is the case. Right. I think that's kind of overestimation of the, the power of form that's rather typical of architects of, of all uh, persuasions. Um, but also, I, I think that when I started looking in more detail at particular projects, if you look at them not just as kind of formal architectural responses to... Um, a client brief, but see the type of work they're doing with the people who use those spaces and start to think about um, changing practices in the workplace, changing educational policies, especially in higher education, the type of particular conditions I look at, then, as uh, the, the book subtitle says, then it appears to me that architecture is actually an instrument of 
control and compliance right <laughs> more than it is straightforwardly some notion of um liberating space and therefore liberating people in, in the way it presents itself as yeah i you know it's one of the reasons why i'm so drawn to the book is because you know f- all the people who talk about capitalism from a critical perspective, uh, you know, who I went to school with, are sort of an, enamored with with precisely these ideas of of kind of like openness and forms and fluids and flows. Um, yeah. And you know, at, at, uh, just to to tell a personal anecdote, um, the way that I kind of became. Uh, well, a serious political thinker at the same moment I was becoming an architect. Um, I was, I was skipping Mm -hmm. studio to go to a, um, anti-death penalty rally for Troy Davis in Atlanta, Georgia. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm going to these rallies and it was a long campaign and they, they kept, uh, putting him on death row and, you know, mm-hmm. we never knew when it was, when it was going to come and we would all, all of a sudden have to mobilize lots of people. And, um, you know, we lost, he, an, a most probably innocent man was executed. And so all of this is going on and I'm sort of embedded in these, these political movements and activism. And, and then I'm, I'm going back to studio and, and working on my projects at the same time. And I have people who are telling me, um, you know, that like, uh, all, for for some reason that I can't really pinpoint, um, mapping flows and forces is like the ultimate political act that uh, that an architect sure. can can make, um, and it was like which is, which is n- not necessarily wrong. I mean, there's some. It seems like there's some power that a building has on some level, but you know, it it does seem like we've way overstated our case here um, for sure. for yeah. the, the the role of theory. And the book kind of goes into that. It talks a little bit about the kind of intellectual. Co- uh, context of this craziness of theory, um, and I'm I'm not an anti-intellectual or an anti-theory person no. at all, but um, yeah, but but there there is a kind of interesting history there of how these ideas have maybe been misappropriated by architects or are are yeah. being leveraged in in maybe bad ways. I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So I I think that. What happens, and I have a, a whole chapter on this, so I'm, I'm very interested in theory, so I have a whole uh, chapter, which is a, a kind of a history of theory and architecture since the 1960s, which probably sounds terribly boring, and, and might be, but I thought it was worth doing anyway. <laughs> and I, I try and point out that there's, um, there's a key turning point. So from the late 60s, especially with something like May 68 being a catalyst, architects start to be drawn to very overtly political theory uh, and start to point out, so you can think about the work of Tafuri, for example, in this context, what, you know, how is architecture playing a role in ideology? People look at architecture in terms of how it's uh, reinforcing gender inequalities or um, racial inequalities, that what architecture has to do with colonialism or neo-colonialism. Um, people also start to struggle, but kind of enjoy the struggle with thinking about, well, what does an intellectual movement like deconstructivism 
mean for architecture. Yeah. So things become very, at the same time, very complicated and very exciting um, and in some way quite politicized for architecture. But there's a next generation that feels that that really is a real obstruction to what they see as the real work of architecture, which is finding out what client wa- clients want and building for them. Now, this is best summarized in a, in a quote that I have in the book from an architect and writer, Michael Speaks, uh, who says, theory was interesting, now we have work. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's presented as a kind of pragmatic term. But what happens is not that uh, theory is ignored, it's that certain architects and certain uh, people quite prominent in architectural culture, like Jeff Kipnis, they they turn to figures of, say, these French philosophers, Deleuze and Guattari, who seem to be talking about smooth space and the nomadic and the opening up of space and affirming fluidity and flexibility. They turn to complexity theory and the like, without really going into them because they're rather kind of uh, difficult theories to um, to, to capture in a, in a, a few phrases. But what I see is happening is rather than being rather than architecture kind of suffering theory and agonizing over its own role and its own implication in the political, it turns the table. So it starts to manage theory. It appropriates theory as it wants to. So it can tell its own story about how progressive it is. And let's not forget, also, clients want to be able to present their projects as progressive. Right, right. No (laughs) one wants to present their projects as oh, this is a new form of control and compliance and exercise of power. So the the type of, the way that architects start to speak is very appealing for their clients as well and allows them both to tell a certain story about how they are progressive. Yeah, while while with the other hand doing the opposite thing. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. So yeah, I I think a good example of this is... um, when you start to talk about how these uh, sort of neoliberal structures of control and ideas of cybernetics um, become spatial. So you, you, mm-hmm. you talk about um, Alan Caprow and, and happenings um, and a, a lot of uh, stuff going on in California. And, and I love that you actually draw from film here. You talk about Alphaville and then uh, THX. Oh, I always forget the, yeah. num- the numbers. Uh, <laughs> but, THX 1138. Yeah, 1138, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, George Lucas film before Star Wars. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's how that's how I know it certainly. Um, yeah. But but I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, counterculture because I think it's it's a similar story, right? That kind of foreshadows yeah. what happens in architecture, where there is this kind of vaguely left thing that's floating out there, but its ideas are actually 100% compatible with the kind of uh, neoliberal uh, control that is coming down the pike. Um, Maybe you can give us a little history, especially with the happenings. So what you're talking about is, yeah, those those ideas becoming compatible with neoliberalism and in many ways meshing very closely with them. So I, I, I should say that I was very much helped by the the thinking and, and the research of Fred Turner, his, his fantastic book called From Counterculture to Cyberculture, where he, he's not so much telling a story through architecture, that's what I decided to do, but he 
tries to draw a distinction in the of what's happening in the late sixties between the new left and the counterculture, mm. and the new left, as you know, socialists of of one variant or another, their their enemy is an increasingly bureaucratic state that they can see starting to use forms of technology, of, of computational technology, to uh, kind of amplify its power and control over the minutiae of, of everyone's everyday life. The counterculture have the same enemy, right. but the, the, their kind of responses are absolutely different, and that's what I try to highlight by looking at the film. So the response of the left would be, well, this is essentially a, a problem with capitalism, and it can only be confronted en masse, in the city, collectively. Whereas for the counterculture, the solution is to escape. There's a, um, a line by Stuart Brand, figure very much, you know, well, perhaps, you know one of the, the central figures of the, the counterculture, uh, certainly in the, in, the, in the West, in the US, um, where he says, workers of the world disperse. Oh, as a kind of counter proposition yeah. to workers of the world unite so it, it seems to be a way of escaping power by going off and um, building small communes in the, in the desert <clears throat> and Fred Turner points out that uh, there isn't anything kind of terribly radical about this it ends up actually reproducing um gender divisions and gender stereotypes and also ethnic uh, divisions that it's largely led by uh, affluent white men. Mm. Um, but what I'm particularly interested in is, is what's presented as a release culturally in the 60s. And this runs through things like happenings um, or it runs through like the experience of psychedelic drugs is that you are immediately immersed in your environment. Yes, there's no distance between you and the world. Um, and you have these kind of intoxicating experiences, you know, uh, aided or not with, with, with drugs. But it's like, you know, Rainer Bannum, the, the architect, this famous picture of him riding his bike through the desert and writing about this rapturous experience of this that he had. So, so their architecture has seemed to be a kind of problem because it creates boundaries. The type of architecture that's uh, preferred even then by figures like Bannum in the uh, 70s is an architecture that's hardly there. It's just about the, the kind of personal technological infrastructure. Um, and, and I see that as kind of feeding into these more contemporary affirmations of being at one with your environment of being connected with your environment and that these are always seen as being again something which we should straightforwardly celebrate whereas for me i'm thinking of or i'm kind of i would identify myself more with a a tradition of critical thinking which demands that there are at least times when you are able to distance yourself from your environment right and think about how it's operating Think about how it's designed to operate on you and think about whether you want to go along with that sure. or not. Yeah. 
and I think the reason really the, the kind of um, passion for the book comes from trying to point out that that's what's going on in a lot of contemporary architecture as well um, and that there's also from the same architectural figures I'm, I'm writing about in their writing uh, a strong current of being anti-critical and in fact anti-rational hmm, and I don't think that that serves us very well if we want to kind of properly understand our world and, and how it's operating yeah yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I was thinking along the same lines when I was reading about the California ideology is, is now what this is kind of yeah. called, right? And, uh, you know, yeah. we think about what's going on in uh, San Francisco with the tech industry. I was, I was just out there. Um, and, you know, we think about how it's the tech industry is taking over the city and, and blah, blah, blah. But um, really it's that these kind of like hippies, they never left. Now many of them are just CEOs, right? <laughs> they yeah. kind of run yeah. the tech companies. Uh, yeah, and, and this kind of thinking is, is still very prevalent. I think it, it has uh, echoes in uh, Elon Musk wanting to go to Mars, right? And um, things yeah. like this. It's the pioneer spirit. So it's about the individual entrepreneur equipped with access to technology and that being presented as like that's your access yeah. to the environment and to making your own world but then immersing other people in it right as well yeah and i, I think uh, there's a, a a word that popped out in a quote uh, oneness right um and yeah. and you and you start to talk about the the whole earth catalog and um some of these architect like C cedric price and his fun palace um, and maybe, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, those two projects, but um, how these kind of architectural projects, they they really start to embody this paradoxical uh, combination of individuality and being one with the kind of cybernetic universe. And there's yeah. something that gets lost in between, and, and I'm curious what that thing is, um, but mm -hmm. maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, the Fun Palace and the... Uh, um, the whole Earth catalog first. Okay. Yeah, so the um, the whole Earth catalog, so this is uh, uh, a kind of latter-day um, goods catalog for the, the new pioneers setting up uh, in the desert their, their new communes in the late 60s and into the 70s. And it's, uh, it's, it's something that's distributed and, it, and it's a catalogue in the sense that it offers the, the goods that these new communalists can purchase in order to facilitate their new lifestyles. But it also uh, would feature uh, essays on um, Zen meditation, on uh, how to build your, uh, your camp, um, and, it, uh, and it really would span the worlds of um, technology, uh, farming and, and, and cultivation, Zen Buddhism and, and, and philosophy. So a whole, a whole range of, of things get brought together in this, in this catalogue. So the individual is placed so that they can as a kind of prototypical consumer, can construct their lifestyle through amalgamating them. And to me, that's quite kind of prototypical uh, neoliberalism and quite prototypical of, of how, um, you know, how we're supposed to live, 
know, as is what we're presented with, is construct right. your own lifestyle. There's a standard phone for everyone, but the apps you choose, I mean, you, you know, you construct your lifestyle and how you're going to um, operate through that selection. Now, the, the Fun Palace, I think what's in, important to say is that talking about uh, spontaneity and wanting to have a project which is about the, the kind of allows a certain spontaneity, spontaneity in use that, that the Fun Palace is interested in or is, is kind of designed to facilitate is not necessarily um, good or bad. It's not necessarily radical or reactionary. You have to think about the context in which it appears. So I think when, this, when these projects, projects similar to the Fun Palace, first uh, kind of coming come to being and are, are discussed and, and thought about, it, it, there might be more credence to the idea that a certain level of spontaneity can be thought of as progressive. Um, but equally, we can look at, back at them and say, well, here, you know, here's the kind of seeds of a neoliberal di discourse about architecture that says when you withdraw the role of the architect as someone who clearly frames activities in space and programs things yeah. uh, and you, you kind of seemingly open up space to spontaneous encounters in another context that can mean something different entirely it can be put to other ends it could be instrumentalized as i write about in a project like the bmw center by mm. hadid uh as a technique of Toyotaist management. Yeah, so it becomes kind of the, the, the notion of a spontaneous encounter gets instrumentalized for new forms of right. capturing value. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's probably a, a good moment to start to turn to some of the projects. Um, sure. Cause, uh, and, I, and, and some of the architects, because you, you call out some, some very specific figures. Um, yeah. And starting, starting with Greg Lynn um, and yeah. moving uh, through Zaha Hadid, Patrick Schumacher, um, and I'm sure you can, you can rattle off the, the list for us. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, so and, and you really focus on this, yeah, what you call the managerialist turn, which you've spoken a little bit about already, but really this idea that, like, hey, now it's time to start to translate these ideas into, um, you know, getting work and, and, and making money. Um, and there's this sort of post-rationalization of it as being post-political, um, yeah. which, which you characterize as hyper-political. So I'm, I'm wondering yeah. if you can kind of talk about some of those figures, just roughly broad overview, who they are, and then um, about how post-political uh, turns into hyper-political in actuality. <laughs> Okay, I'll try. So I think the first thing I should do, and it's a bit of a disclaimer, um, but is, is to say that this is the architecture of neoliberalism, the book, is not a work, strictly speaking, it's not a work of criticism. So my intention is not to kind of point at particular figures and say, you're bad architects, right? <laughs> or I don't personally like you, or I'm finding fault with you. I name names because they are visible in architectural culture and they are, you know, names are attached to buildings and, that, and that's their value. So it's, it's a work of critique rather than criticism, which means when people make certain claims, 
about how progressive their architecture is or how it's liberating or how it's good to be flexible, I'm taking them to task on those claims. So uh, the figures I've been looking at, I mean, I, I look at Greg Lynn. Greg Lynn is significant as an architect and, and a writer about architecture and that he's one of the, the early figures who takes up the ideas of these uh, French philosophers, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari. So ideas from theirs about um, what's called folding um, and smooth space, for instance. And what he and other architects do is take these ideas from a very kind of complex field of philosophy and I, I think rather crudely translate them into formal ideas and formal ideas that prescribe yeah. certain types of architecture. So an architecture that's smooth, an architecture that's undulating, an architecture that's folded, yes. for example. So Wibbly-wobbly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have, I suppose, another key figure I look at in, in terms of his arguments is Jeff Kipnis. Jeff Kipnis, very prominent, um, yeah, very prominent in, in numerous publications, especially around journals like Log, uh, who, I mean, one, one of the things I kind of challenge his ideas around is that he talks about there being, you know, there's, there's no ideas, there's, there's no meaning, there's just matter. And we're kind of immediately connected with it. everything's matter. It says, you know, if you go back to the Big Bang, then the first few seconds of that, there's, there's no meaning, there's no ideas, there's just matter. So it's this insistence from a very kind of dubious ontological position of uh, saying, so we, so we can't talk about meaning, we need to ignore meaning. Um, and in some ways, what we find is people like him or uh, Sylvia Lavin, paradoxically, talking about how we are kind of over language now mm. and that we should we're just in a realm of what they call affect so just a pure feeling that doesn't have any sort of um cognitive element to right. it so there are those figures there are figures who write about architecture um i, I suppose the 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 other kind of figures i i look at and kind of point a finger at as you as you suggest are uh, Zaha Hadid and especially her uh, partner uh, in practice Patrick Schumacher I mean I, I see Zaha as someone who just has some kind of stylistic affinity with fluid forms and in a, in a rather unconvincing way tries to make some claims about how this is liberating and how if you bring people together, then you create community and all, all the problems of the world will be solved by bringing right. people together in undulating landscapes. <laughs> and then Patrick Schumacher, who uh, uh, writes at much greater length. And at, at one point was making claims that uh, a, a new architecture of 
fluidity and connectivity in office space, in workspace, for instance, could actually be taken up as a radical project. And then his politics switch. Um, and then he, he stops saying that it's the progressive radical project and then says architecture has no right being political. Right. And the whole purpose is very prescriptive about this. He just and very clear and dogmatic, actually, just says, you know, the, the, the purpose of the avant-garde in architecture is to serve the existing demands presented to them, uh, the existing demands in terms of um, allowing forms of communication by the status quo, right. and that politics is only and exclusively to be the work of politicians. Right. The rest of us have no right to engage in such debates, yeah. which I find deeply troubling. And I'm not alone in that. Yeah, no. Uh, he's, he's made recent pronouncements where he has said that he, you know, he's he thinks that spe- you know public space should be privatised. Right. For example, and he's come out and he made rather kind of shocking statements. I, I think not shocking to people who know him, but people outside of the architectural community, um, because their perception is that architects kind of work for the democratic public good but he's very clear that that's not necessarily the role of architecture right yeah and uh, you know it's it is it is interesting um because I, I think one of one of the things that you say is missing from sort of all of these architects' work is labor, right like being able to yeah. see labor and and for me this is uh ties together a lot of a lot of things because you know, when they're talking about mapping forces and and kind of the way that ecological forces push and pull on these buildings to uh, create smooth space and a conflict-free space that kind of uh, ties in all of these things, um, you know, they're they're being sort of disingenuous because there's lots of other forces, labor being a big one, because there's no yeah. building without labor, um, the labor yeah. of the architect, the people who are making it, uh, etc. And, you know, to pick on Patrick Schumacher some more, you know, on, on some level, uh, and this is very unpopular, I, I do have an iota of sympathy for the position that architects don't know what they're talking about when it comes to politics <laughs> and, and, yeah. and that they have okay. yeah. grossly overstated um, the, the kind of political possibilities of architecture. But I, I, I don't think, um, but beyond that, of course, I have uh, very no respect for the gentleman, and I think that labor is really this key point where no labor is hyper political. Work is always hyper political, yeah. um, and 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 that's the moment where architecture, regardless of um, you know an architect's, regardless of their involvement in uh, political processes that are kind of made official, like elections. Mm. Um, uh, can really start to have some some serious impact, and in that respect, architecture is always political, right? Um, as, sure. as as it just become kind of a trope these days, but um, one that I'm glad exists, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the most political or the most kind of useful thing that, that an architect can do politically is to think about their own position within the architectural industry politically rather than thinking about, okay, well, how can I, you know, change the world with a particular architectural form? Right. Is to, this is why I'm so sympathetic to the, the architectural lobby, is, is because the, it's this move of saying, 
okay, well, first and foremost, we are labourers. So let's recognise our labour. And that itself is a, a you know, profoundly important yeah. political step to take. So there is the, the, the labour of the people who work in the architecture offices. Right. Which is absolutely obscured. Right. Even the, the work of the, the big name architects at the front of those companies is to some extent denied because they present it as, oh, this is self-organized or this, this, uh, this form emerged when we ran it through or when, you know, the, we ran it through a, a generative computational program or the like. So if you look at the, the renderings, the video renderings of, of a number of projects, you see they just pop up into the air. Right. They emerge out of, of, of thin air. So there's no recognition of labor. And then my, my last point, and I make this at some length in the book, is that you have things which are quite difficult to build, which involve you know, difficult, dangerous physical labor. And then the final stage of the architecture is to cover it all over with a cladding that makes it look smooth, that erases any sign that it's actually been built yeah. <laughs> by people. Sure. And so, again, it looks like it does in the in the mind of the architect if it's just an idea that's popped out into space right yeah as if our our, our we try to make our uh reality look more like renderings than vice versa almost right there's this weird yeah. equivalency between the image and the and the end result um yeah. so i guess to all of our non-architectural listeners um be wary of what you see in renderings <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and make sure that it's not obscuring labor um yeah, I I, yeah, I think um, I, t I totally ag agree with that, uh, obviously, being a member of the architecture lobby, um, because it, it really also puts us in a better position to be able to advocate for the communities that we want to be advocating for just as people, um, because we yeah. can build solidarities and we actually have um, meaningful economic leverage beyond just a kind of cultural yeah. leverage. And I guess that's my question because, uh, um, you know, I think part of the rationalization that these architects have, because I, I don't really think that they're, uh, and I, 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 I think you would agree with this, it's not a conspiracy, right? Uh, and I, it yeah. doesn't seem like, you know, I, I believe that they have good faith that what they're doing is actually progressive, but they're, they're missing the mark by a mile. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, with the exception yeah. of Patrick Schumacher, uh, he, <laughs> he deserves a kind of special little box uh, somewhere to the side. But um, I think, uh, um, you know, how, like, how did we get here, right, uh, on some level? Yeah. Like, how is this not a conspiracy? Um, I think they they tend to think about themselves as, like, a cultural Trojan horse that is slowly, yeah. through the buildings, implanting ideas. Um, and and that just seems, that, that part does seem disingenuous. But I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to maybe, in your studies of, of these characters, um, how they do and do not think about their, their own role in action here. Well, um the quick answer is I'm, I'm not sure about them as an individual. I haven't interviewed sure. okay. people. I've, I've kind of looked at it in terms of what people have written, what they say, what they put out there, because that's what people read and it's, it's what people receive that I, that I want to challenge. But if I may kind of slightly change or answer an earlier question, I think if we 
you asked me about this kind of gap between the individual or what's in the gap between the individual and the environment. So I see neoliberalism as a project to just, if this makes sense, to individualize us. Yeah. So we are concerned only with ourselves and our relationship, an unmediated relationship with, you know, our environment, which is governed by the economy. And what's missing, of course, from that, what they try to eradicate, you know, neoliberal thoughts try to eradicate are notions of solidarity or notions of commonality, even. And so when you said about the architectural lobby and it being about, you know, recognising your identity as workers and then how you, how you can therefore form solidarities or at least connections with other people, you can form connections with other people as workers. Right. Or other people, you know, suffer in capitalism. Right. Um, you know, have no choice but to work or, or, or suffer something even worse. So, so it's actually on the, the kind of political move seems to me to recognise what, what we have in common and to try and build on that and, and across that. Yeah. Um, and so rather than thinking about, okay, because I'm quite often asked, okay, so what would the, you know, the, the, the radical architecture be? I don't know that there is a, an answer to right. that. It's certainly not one that I don't have. And I'm not an architect either. But I mean, I just don't. I'm a bit I'm with um, the French philosopher Michel Foucault who said, well, you can't talk about architectures being straightforwardly oppressive or, or liberating there's right. this whole other set of contexts you have to look at and that's what i try and do in the book yeah fantastic well um we are we are suddenly very quickly out of time but i think that's a really okay. good place to end uh less radical good. architecture more radical solidarities um yeah. and uh, yeah tell us where people can find out some more information about the book Okay, the, the book is published by Bloomsbury. So if you go onto Bloomsbury's website, you can go onto Bloomsbury and type in my name on their page or go to Bloomsbury Academic and type in my name there. Great. You'll be able to see it in some more details about it. Fantastic. Well, and okay. I, I also recommend that everyone uh, follow follow Doug Spencer on Twitter. Why Theory One is the handle. Um, it's, you get you had a, you got a great Twitter. That's how we got you on the show, and I'm I'm glad you're here. Thanks so much great. again, and uh, we'll Thank talk you. soon. Yeah, great. great, thanks, pleasure. And in a couple minutes, we'll be back with Zach Mortiz. He's here with us in the studio. We'll talk about the preservation crisis of African American cemeteries, and then maybe a little bit about the Obama Library. Talk to you in a minute. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host Kiefer Dunn, and we are joined now in the studio by architecture and landscape journalist, Zach Mortiz. How are you doing? I'm hyped to hang. All right. <laughs> hyped to hang. I love it. I'm going to, I might borrow that one for later. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, you're a two-time guest. You've, you're joining um, uh, an illustrious uh, brother and sisterhood of uh, two-timers to Buildings on Air. Um, I think there's only three of you now. Elite company? Elite company. I can only assume. Yes, indeed. Um but uh, you, you're you're very much a man about town, um, writing about Chicago architecture and uh, its various figures and um, platitudes. Yes, ideal platitudes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think we'll we'll talk about the Obama Library. Um, but first, you just wrote this uh, lo- sort of longer form uh, article in Places Journal that was talking about 
an issue that I I never really considered, um, and I think uh, that's probably why it's a, an interesting article because uh, not a lot of people have. That's why my mom it. said she liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I wrote about uh, this uh, secret landscape preservation crisis that yeah. I was completely unaware of. Uh, African American cemeteries, often from the Reconstruction era, uh, these are very often. Uh, neglected in, in ratios you know, compared to white cemeteries, often located in low-income, uh, really struggling neighborhoods, um, you know, kind of uh, redlined and uh, d- discriminated out of you know generational wealth, so on and so forth. Uh, there have really been no efforts uh, to comprehensively catalog these type things. Uh, there, there's one national effort just barely getting underway. There have been a handful of local and state-based survey attempts uh, not to fix them up, just to figure out just even what's there. So, you know, for example, in one county in South Carolina, they found 200 more or less undocumented African-American cemeteries. So if you, if you, if you extrapolate that out across the entire country, uh, you know, there are tens of thousands of these. And, and again, no one really knows. I mean, if you talk to preservation experts uh, kind of in this idiom, they'll say, you know, we can guess that a third of all uh, African-American cemeteries kind of from that area from the late 19th century are, you know, really abandoned. And uh, why that's why that's bad, why that's an issue is there's incredible uh, cultural heritage in these. You can, in a lot of cities that have had, uh, you know, African-American populations starting out from the Great Migration era, you'll see uh, this is where the first newspaper publisher was buried of, of an African-American newspaper. You'll see this is where the first uh, local college professor, the first lawyer, hmm. uh, all of the kind of original Reconstruction era, you know, uh, civil rights era one uh, sure. uh, folks uh, were buried and where, where their family's uh, history is. So, uh, yeah, in- incredible uh, historical richness that you really can't get anywhere else. And, you know, these landscapes are kind of uh, fading into the underbrush and uh, disappearing. And that's something we need to be thinking about. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and you, you start by focusing on, on one specific cemetery, Greenwood Cemetery, which is uh, outside of St. Louis. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Greenwood is a perfect example of what these sites can really offer. Uh, Greenwood was established in the 1870s by a German immigrant, and it was the first kind of pure commercial enterprise uh, cemetery serving African Americans in St. Louis. Um, it's located just kind of across uh, the county line in St. Louis County in the north part of town where most African American folks live, and it's it's really incredible. Uh, so Dred Scott's wife there of the Dred Scott case, uh, in the Supreme Court, his wife is buried there. Uh, Pretty legendary jazz and blues musicians are married there. Grant Green, jazz guitarist from St. Louis. Uh, Walter Davis, blues, blues musician. Mm. The literal but also sort of mythic Stagger Lee, like, you know, the song about a Stagger Lee? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. He's, he's buried there. Uh, and so this is, um, as I said, it was you know, started in the Reconstruction era. Um, active burials going on, you know, until sometime in the 80s and 90s. And... Um, you know, over that time, this part of St. Louis, uh, a lot of white flight, a lot of disinvestment. Uh, I mean, at this point, it's the town of Hillsdales is where it's located. Uh, has like a you know an average household income that's half of the rest of St. Louis. Um, high unemployment, so on and so forth. 90, 95 plus percent African American, uh, intensely segregated, and it's kind of been left to a band of you know retiree volunteers uh, sure. to 
organize community events and draw people in and get corporate donations and just kind of general, you know, pro bono scrapping in this disinvested neighborhood uh, to clear things away, uh, to make the site passable at all. And, and they've done a lot. Um, as I detail in the story, about a third of the site is back to, you know, being a standard issue kind of manicured cemetery experience. But right. you get back there and it's, it's uh, yeah, you're kind of in this... Uh, forested Midwestern Gothic womb of, of vines and, and trees, yeah. and there, you know, there's some interesting ways that landscape designers have thought about riffing on that. Yeah, yeah, and we'll come back to that for sure because it's very interesting. But I had never really thought of like, well, n- never thought in detail about the way that cemeteries are even kind of funded in the first place because they they do like in in a capitalist society, especially neoliberal one, as we were just talking with uh, Doug Spencer about they do kind of fall in this weird crack, right? Where they're, they're in many instances, private or semi-private like uh, enterprises, um, but they have to be maintained forever, presumably. Um, but like, maybe you could just tell us like, how, how do these things usually work in, in uh, neighborhoods and, and localities that aren't affected by kind of systemic uh, um, uh, discrimination? Yeah, I mean, usually, um, best case scenario, you just have lots and lots of room where you can keep interring bodies uh, so that you can keep uh, getting income. And, you know, in a case, uh, you know, any cemetery that's been around, you know, since Reconstruction, uh, since, uh, you know, since since the Johnson administration, the first the Johnson <laughs> administration, uh, you'd, you'd ha- hopefully have some time to build up a decent endowment to, to keep things going, even mm-hmm. if you do run out of space and you get your historic plaque and your historic landmark and kind of um, maybe, quote unquote, brand it that way. Uh, but, but in these places, yeah, those, those resources uh, just don't exist. So in that way, you know, this, this idea of permanent interment, mm. uh, permanent interment where you don't move the body ever, um, really becomes an issue uh, as, as cemeteries, especially in disinvested neighborhoods, yeah. run out of space. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was interesting because I was doing some thinking just about the ways in which attitudes towards death have been changed, um, it, sort of in conjunction with the market economy and its development. And, uh, you know, especially thinking about it in relation to, um, you know, kind of rereading this book that we were just talking with Doug about. And I found a fascinating statistic that from 1960 to 2015, cremation as a, a percentage of burials went from 4% to 55% over 40 years. I mean, it's the low impact sharing millennial economy, right? Yeah, right. That's why that's why it's blowing up. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I mean there there are kind of more more ideas about uh, mobility and I mean, the general wastefulness of kind of taking up space on a permanent basis like that that makes I me mean, cremation sound like maybe the way to go uh, for me especially if it avoids kind of problems like this. Right. Later on. But I mean, yeah, I mean, the I mean, the design of cemeteries itself kind of plays into into that as well, because, uh, you know, pre- previous to kind of uh, well, maybe the mid 19th century, folks were kind of just buried in a field or in a churchyard or maybe mm. if they owned their own land, uh, it would be kind of on a family plot. Uh, but that was that tended to spread the cholera real good. Right. Uh, so people understood germ theory. They thought, hey, it's, let's maybe be a bit more organized about this. So. Um, how that changed um, is kind of with the invention of the rural cemetery. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so the, the first example of that was a cemetery in Cambridge, Mount Auburn. And that was really kind of the first really curated idea of a, a, a memorial cemetery landscape. So there's kind of these 
uh, Olmstedian curves and really kind of intense and intricate planting kind of, uh, and topography kind of obscuring and showing different views of the land. Yeah. And so, I mean, this, uh, the first time out with this Auburn Cemetery, I mean, they spent lots and lots of money. They hired fancy landscape designers. And, I mean, I don't know, within 20 years, this was like a tourist attraction. You'd come to Boston, and where, where are you going? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to the cemetery. I'm going to check out this this fancy uh, new cemetery. And I mean, so I, I suppose you can see that as, as a way to, you know, build in a larger audience to keep help your cemetery supported. I mean, I, I enjoy, uh, you know, a ramble through, through Grayson Cemetery just, sure. you know, the, uh, every now and again, but it's all, you could also kind of see it as, um, I don't know, institutional or corporatist way to kind of depersonalize, uh, you know, grave sites and, and burials, taking it out of a really intimate domestic sphere to this kind of much wider, uh, quasi-commercial institutional sphere. Yeah. Um, Station ID real quick. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's really interesting, especially when you start to talk about different movements within landscape architecture, because it, it does start to imply a kind of other way, right? Because um, one of the difficulties with with uh, uh, the preservation problem um, is that they're hard to maintain. There's lots of grass because they're based off of this kind of idyllic, um, giant manicured lawn, as you, as you were just suggesting. Um, so I'm curious, what what are the alternatives to that? Um, you know, I, I think also this idea of of a kind of giant lawn as a civic piece of civic infrastructure has uh, fallen by the wayside. Um, you know, we think about in Chicago the way that like Grant Park is underutilized as a space in this day and age, right? Where versus maybe uh, 50, 100 years ago, I think there's maybe some similarities there. Cemetery or no? Yeah, so the real bummer is that no one really knows how to bring back a formerly neglected cemetery of any sort uh, in any multi-layered curated way because it's never been done. I mean, so a few people have scraped together a little bit of money to regularly trim the grass, but even those kind of quote-unquote great success stories, they're looking at the little pile of money and it costs $1,100 to cut the grass. Like, we have no more money coming in like where where is this going um i did come across one uh phenomenal young landscape designer named azura cox and she got an laf landscape architecture foundation grant to to look at some of this stuff and study this issue and her idea is to really kind of uh honor all aspects of greenwood cemetery by kind of curating landscapes from each of those points so there'll be the kind of uh, more typical uh, manicured, uh, you know, crew cut type landscape expression we we expect uh, nowadays. There'll be kind of uh, more designy rural cemetery type thing. And really, the most fascinating part is in the back section of Greenwood. Uh, it's really forested, and you can kind of see the remnants of these trails. And uh, you can see the the former footpath there, but it's really overgrown. But to kind of keep that and clear certain parts of it so it's kind of like this nature's embrace type thing and Mm. there's uh, maybe add some sculpture park elements and do some specific like tree plantings in certain configurations that create outdoor rooms so you know it's it's still a shaggy kind of a little bit unkempt experience yeah um but you can tell it's it's been curated it's been cared for and designed by someone but it it references like the the decades of of neglect where the site was uh kind of going feral um so yeah it's it's a way to kind of uh, show all these layers off um, and, and respect them. And it's, it's fascinating t- 
to think about applying that idea to an African-American cemetery, this kind of forested enclosure, because while I was researching this article, I came across this phenomenal painting called A Plantation Burial by John Antrobus. And basically, this painting depicts a uh, plantation burial on the Mississippi River somewhere in the south, and there are uh, African-American folks, uh, slaves at the time, uh, shrouded in white, uh, various mourners, you know, families, little kids. Uh, there's a preacher uh, standing up top of this, this little hill holding a Bible. And they're, they're kind of, there's a couple of white folks kind of um, on the outside kind of looking in, kind of curious and not really knowing how, how close they should get and be made kind of uncomfortable by everything happening. Because you can see this is a really intimate ritual mm. for them and all around them is is this forest and i said it's just almost like womb like it's enclosure and i thought like that would be a great prompt for a landscape designer to think about these sites um that you know they're not the ones i was specifically looking at weren't uh somewhat they weren't slaves it was more reconstructionary some of the people were born into slavery but uh it was established during the reconstruction area but that's yeah a really phenomenal prompt to connect um you know, early uh, 18th and 19th century African-American burial traditions to, to the experience. Now you can kind of tell that story uh, by, yeah, uh, putting together a memorial landscape that's, um, yeah, nature as, as, as enclosure. Yeah, because there's this, yeah, there's this bigger question that kind of emerges from that, which is what does it mean to preserve and what are you, what are you preserving? Yeah. Um, and I think that that what you kind of detail is that like, hey, Part of it, uh, part of Azura Cox's project, is to preserve in a weird way the neglect, right? Um, as 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 part of it, um, n- and obviously not to keep it neglectful, but um, to do what you're describing and kind of um, let let this this piece of land stand as a as a memorial to uh, many of the ways in which society has sort of failed uh, uh, these spaces. Um, and, and, and these people. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, um, I don't know if, if, if you have more thoughts on, on sort of the nature of preservation and when, when is the appropriate time to step in? Yeah. I, I mean, so preservation is interesting for landscape architecture because, uh, the, the matter you're manipulating is literally growing and altering and changing constantly. Like at Greenwood, for example, uh, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, they had, uh, had, you know, gotten some volunteer groups together and had a good amount of steam, and a little bit of funding, and they trimmed everything back uh, about to, to where it is now. And, you know, there was a period of four or five years where not as many people in the community were involved. There were fewer volunteers. Uh, so it kind of, it literally kind of grew back. Um, they're kind of beating back the green tide. And so that's, uh, yeah, I mean, you can't really preserve uh, a landscape in, in a strict sense like you can with a building. Mm. Uh, it's always going to be kind of growing and evolving. It's just it's more about um, setting up a, a template of parameters is, is about the most you can do. A template of parameters. Yeah. I, I also thought one of the interesting things you talked about was um, – all the different ways in which these projects could potentially be funded. And and one of them being like a kind of counter to neoliberalism, a kind of reinstatement of a, a new deal works progress administration yeah. that would focus on, on space. Yeah. The like craziest, this. if I wanted to like invent a fictional scenario to get like mean alt, right. People like tweeting poorly worded, like memes at me. Like I would be, com- yeah. I would be on Twitter complaining more about how there's not, <laughs> funding for this. But the thing is, man, there is 100% precedent for investing in stuff like this. Like, and you can look at it from both angles, right? You can say like the kind of 
uh, landscape parks element. Okay, we had the Civilian Conservation Corps. They, I mean, they sent millions of people out the height of the Great Depression and put right. people to work to to do this type of thing, uh, to to create state parks and agricultural infrastructure, so on and so forth. And then on on the cultural angle, just the cultural preservation and documentation, you had you know the Works Progress Progress Administration, the Federal Music Project. So they're documenting sea shanties, they're documenting African American spirituals and Quaker hymns. Uh, I mean, it, it, yeah, the government has used tax dollars uh, within our grandparents' lives to do this. We could absolutely do it. Yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, it'd be a great, great new New Deal. And, I mean, our, our president literally campaigned on infrastructure, right? right. I mean, he had, he had Steve Bannon uh, hissing his forked tongue, tongue in his ear about rebuilding all the trains and the airports and uh, all the highways. Uh, at one point he said he was going to rebuild the inner cities. Right. Um, uh, so obviously we have we have no real reason to believe that was something he really wanted to do for more sure. than five minutes because he's a toddler, uh, <laughs> who and so who knows? But uh, the the stars have sort of aligned for this, uh, but it's still you know, it'd be a really tough tough push for Greenwood or any other site to uh, to get this together. But they've got some great great ideas behind it right now. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly offers up like a kind of like concrete. Uh, point of political engagement, right, um, and, and, and something to advocate for politically um, that, you know, as people who deal with space and landscape, we might know something about um, and be able to contribute to um, humbly and within, within the, uh, the realm of our expertise. Um, yeah, is, I, I'm, is there anything else that I'm missing? It was, it was a really good article um, before we switch gears here. Uh, let's see. There was, there was a cool moment that didn't make it into the uh, into the story where I'd been in in San Diego uh-huh. um, j- just immediately uh, before going there. So I brought like one. Uh, there's a tradition of grave goods uh, in Af- African American burial traditions where you bring certain items and just kind of leave them as an offering. Yeah. Uh, to uh, yeah to the dead and some sometimes it's like certain plants uh, or. Um, Sometimes they'll make like various kind of wreaths out of vines and certain plants. And but one tradition that goes back to West Africa that's one of the more common grave goods traditions is to collect white seashells. Um, so I did that, picked up some some white seashells in, in La Jolla and, uh-huh. and uh, took them back across and handed them over. And I, mean, I hope uh, the next time I'm back at Greenwood, uh, I can I can find where those have, have been have been distributed. And yeah, maybe maybe walk the grounds with some landscape architects uh, thinking about it and maybe getting them to to riff on on the grave goods tradition uh, yeah. at Greenwood and, and what you can do with that as a designer. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Um, well, let's switch gears here. Um, Still talking about landscape. Still talking about landscape, of course. I, I, and um, you've also written recently about the Obama Library, and I imagine this being a Chicago-centric uh, show about architecture and politics broadcasting from the South Side. It will be a recurring um, theme over the coming uh, year and perhaps You're going to get years. a lot of long-time first-time yes. folks calling yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And um, I hope to have uh, more guests who are – uh, you know, sort of directly involved in the project. Um, but you, being a man about town, you know the players. You've been keeping an eye on things, um, and you've you've written an article in uh, was it landscape landscape architecture magazine. Yeah, about the specifically the landscape of the project, which is 
crucially important. I don't know if folks out there have seen the proposal, but um, in effect, it's a landform building. It is it is basically a building that is raised, but made to feel like it's under the ground, with the exception of this one sort of very archaic looking and feeling stone uh, I don't, obelisk pyramid. I think, well, uh, the architects are calling it a lantern. Other okay. people have called it like a, what was it? There's, it looked like and something it, from Star Wars. I think, uh, yeah, yeah, or like a, like the Pharaoh's Tomb, I yes. think, was one. Um, we, we can play that game all day. Yeah, anyway, the, I mean, the landscape is really the critical issue yeah. for this site. This is, so we're talking about uh, Frederick Law Olmsted's Jackson Park, about a 20-acre you know, section of it. Uh, so, you know, this is kind of one of Olmsted's um, you know, top you know, three or four most intact parks anywhere in the world. So this right. is very important. And for our non-architecture, landscape architecture um, uh, audience, who is Olmsted? Give us Olm- a little Olmsted bit of that. Olmsted is uh, kind of maybe maybe the godfather. You can you can compare him to Frank Lloyd Wright in, in breadth and influence uh, in, uh, in landscape architecture as opposed to architecture, uh, practiced mostly in the 19th century. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he designed, he designed Central Park. So just right. think about Central Park. Um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, as I said, landscape's really the, the critical issue here. Uh, and landscape, this issue's been intensified by the not-so-good process the University of Chicago used to get this site. Hmm. Uh, University of Chicago, who backed the bid uh, that, that won the, the, uh, the running, I guess, uh, for the Obama Library, basically they offered land in a couple um, Chicago Olmsted parks that they did not own uh, and said, build your library here. The, the parks district okayed it, the city, the mayor okayed it. Uh, they said, let's, let's take this public land and give it over for private use. Hmm. Um, they did that uh, and, you know, in full view of some other pretty viable opportunities. For example, they had an 18-acre parcel uh, just across the street from Washington Park, another Olmsted Park. Uh, there'll probably be some, some fancy development that makes a lot of money uh, on that parcel uh, going ahead as the as, uh, cultural imprint of University of Chicago keeps increasing and, and maybe right. they have the, uh, the Obama Library added to it. Anyway, so that's, uh, that's kind of the bad process that's brought us to this point. And... So then I, I think it becomes inc- incumbent to make sure that whatever is built in the section of Jackson Park has to remain uh, publicly, as publicly accessible as, as any park. Um, it's got to be open and free to everyone, even when the museum's closed. And the, uh, the plan, as, pr- as proposed as such, uh, it, spatially at least, uh, looks like that could happen. It's by MVVA, a New York landscape architecture firm. They're the lead partners on this. Uh, also backed up by Living Habitats and Site Design Group, mm. uh, local landscape architecture firm. Uh, but what's what's great about them is they're local. Uh, they're found, their founder Ernie Wong uh, is a native South Sider. He works at the park district all the time. Uh, so, uh, and as Kiefer mentioned, you know it's uh, a plan where there's this one museum building, but everything else is uh, pretty low low slung buildings, and there's. Uh, hills with trails that take you right up on top of this green roof with lots and lots more more, more topography. Uh, so that could be a really unique singular park space uh, yeah. for Chicago, and uh, that's that's absolutely what's needed. That's what's required. This this plan has to make a great park greater, and at this point, at least, it looks like uh, it has the opportunity to do that. Yeah, I'm very curious, and I'm I'm also curious um, about the public perception of the project. And so I don't know um, I don't know yet um, uh, if you've talked to anyone from Woodlawn about it. Um, I'm I, I I'm I'm hoping that we can get someone from the show uh, or 
onto the show from Woodlawn, who's who's kind of been keeping tabs on on the whole process. Um, but I think forever open, free and clear, right? That's the motto for our lakefront and and kind of these grand Olmsteadian parks. So um, I, I agree. I hope it remains open. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Have you have you spoken with anyone down there? Not recently. I did go yeah. to a lot, a lot of community meetings gotcha. back when this was was shaking out. And most people in the community um, are for the library. Uh, there, there's a moderate and but pretty vocal uh, resistance against it. I mean, and that's of course tied up with all the other uh, all the all the other issues uh, with. Folks in the community being wary of the University of Chicago's kind of continued right. expansion of footprint, uh, and I, I don't, I don't want to diminish that at all. That, that's a real dynamic uh, that, yeah. that'll uh, keep going on for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, I, th- I think it'll be uh, there'll be a lot of excitement, um, especially as I said, if this can remain uh, as open as any park space. I mean, I, one thing that just looking at these pretty, still pretty rough designs made me think of is. Uh, there's a lot of topography there that's very rare for Chicago parks. There's some good examples, again, that Site Design Group has done. Uh, but it, it, you know, kind of walking along that rooftop kind of made me think, like, this could be a bit like the view uh, of the city from an L train, yeah. right? Yeah. Kind of you're, you're within, you're above the city, but you're not quite, not quite beyond it. Uh, could be some really cool vistas, just really cool spatial perspective uh, and, and that you would get anywhere else because no other L trains get that close to the lake. Yeah, it's interesting. And the, the L used to run right out to that site because, of course, before it was, um, you know, Jackson Park proper, it was the site of the Columbian Expo. And the Green Line uh, used to go beyond Cottage Grove, um, right, uh, all, right down 63rd, all the way to Jackson Park, right where the library is going to be. And they, uh, I, I worked on a project right there um, maybe a year ago. Um, and it was, you know, I, I'm sure they're kicking themselves because they, they tore it out because business owners were complaining that in order to revitalize the neighborhood, they had to get away, uh, get rid of the L tracks to let light onto the street. Um, and there was a perception that it was a public safety issue. And it might well have been, um, but... Um, yeah, what a missed opportunity, but um, hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> but uh, it just made me think of that. And, and yeah, and also some of the other changes in the neighborhood generally. Um, you know, I know around that area talking about the changes and the expansion of University of Chicago's footprint. Um, the, the project that I worked on was for a group called Preservation of Affordable Housing that is trying to kind of work with the university and, and figure out a way where um, – all stakeholders from the community, uh, people who, who used to live in, in the housing projects there, um, and the university can all work together. Um, I'm, I'm sort of dubious of the whole thing, um, but um, that's maybe a story for another time. Um, well, I think we're out of time. Um, do you have any, any last minute comments? Uh, where can people find you? Um, in, so you can writing? find me very, very often on Landscape Architecture Magazine's website. I'm their web editor. I'm there all the time. Uh, other clips coming out in Architect Magazine, Arabs Doggerel. And yeah, follow me on Twitter at Zach Mortiz cool. on Instagram. Uh, I feel like drone photography. That's what I'm into lately. Oh, <laughs> that's that, that's that's the new hotness for yeah <laughs> for the Chicago summer. Uh, yeah, at Zach Mortiz at Twitter Word. and Instagram. Cool, and uh, also you've got a a, a great uh, podcast that I, I like to think of as a sister show to Buildings on Air with a. Uh, 
our friend Ben Schulman. Um, yes, yes. Should be more, more coming from that soon. Great, yeah. A lot you got to holler. That's the name of that. Um, anyway, thanks for joining us, Zach. Thanks uh, for having me. We'll be back in uh, five minutes or so with Anne Louie and Craig Graschke of Future Firm, and we're going to answer your questions about buildings. Welcome back to Buildings On Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and we're joined in the studio as we are every month with uh, by Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. How are you guys doing? Hey, we're doing good. Great. Thanks for having us back. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, every month I hope to have you guys back. I, I count on it. It's a two-hour show. I need, I need you and I want you. Uh, um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think everyone, everyone looks forward to uh, this segment and these questions. Last time you guys told me that the questions were a little too silly. <laughs> they were pretty silly. I've, I've, I, I think I've got a, a happy medium of questions that I've curated um, that, are, that, are, that are practical, um, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> the first question comes from producer Jamie, who's been working the boards, Jamie Trecker, and he asks, does an architect have a responsibility to a client to advise them that the decisions made by a contractor overseeing the construction may be incorrect? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The uh, AIA contracts lay out, I think, fairly clearly that the architect should inform the owner of any concerns that they have uh, of the work that's being done. And if the, uh, if the architect is following the AIA contracts, uh, I guess, uh, to the letter, they should also be informing the, uh, the owner what items they should be paying the contractor for when they're complete. Yeah. I mean, in any traditional arrangement, the architect is supposed to be kind of the representative of the owner um, in all matters related to the construction of the house. This is one thing, though, that I actually I think is an interesting topic to talk about because in practice, it seems that that rarely happens. Right. And that the architect tends to be like the owner's representative up until the kind of permit is issued. And then the work is kind of handed off to the contractor and in like, unless you are in a really kind of well-run job, it, it seems like the owner and contractor are more, um, are conversing with each other more. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a question that also has to do with the scale of the work. I think when we worked on larger projects, construction administration, like that aspect of an architect's role was incredibly, was was weighted equally as, as kind of the drawing work that we do in advance of construction. But of course, like when we see on smaller work that we do now that we started our own practice, uh, like owners aren't expecting as much that uh, architects are so involved with the construction process. They really believe we should be like, and to be an advocate and to be a kind of like boots on the ground for what's going on. Does that, I guess, since you're here, I, I should ask you, <laughs> is there is there a situation where you felt like uh, you should have, uh, architects should have advocated for you for work that was happening and it didn't happen? Well, I was just asking because obviously I had a house fire and we're rebuilding our house. Yeah. So I've seen the architect twice, mm. you know, he drew plans and that's, that's really about it. So, I mean, it, it struck me because, you know, being, working on the show, I had the sense that architects we're supposed to be more involved. Yeah. And so my experience has been that that's not the case. And I'm not going to name who that person is on the <laughs> air. But, um, you know, the, the process has been strange. And I should also say, by the way, I'm not concerned that my contractor is doing things wrong. Mm. But I was had a city inspection this week. And so I started to think about these things because, you know, the inspectors want to look at the plans. And if there's any deviations or changes in the plans, obviously you can't pass an inspection. Mm. In our case, our porch, uh, which we had been battling with our insurance company, uh, 
did not pass an inspection. We flunked it. So the porch has to be uh, DNH'd, you know, basically, which we had thought all along, but the insurance company didn't want to do it. And the question came to my mind because the architect never did drawings to replace the porch, which in my opinion, they should have. And they that's why have. I wanted to kind of broach it because I don't think people in my situation or, or maybe in a smaller situation would, would even think about that. I, I, you know, I didn't know anything about it until I started working this show. And I figured since I had two people, three people <laughs> sitting here, yeah, I yeah. might as well go to the source, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. or if not, not necessarily that they should have done the drawings, but they should have looked at the porch when they visited your house with you and said, like advised, hey, this, you know, porch isn't up to code because during the fire, like connection X is not working or this like lumber is no longer, you know, up to code. So they should have advised you that that is something that you should have included in the package. Yeah. But, but we, yeah, we do try to talk to clients about the fact that us being involved in construction administration can make the projects a lot better. And I, but I think this is something that comes up a lot is we'll, we'll hand a client a fee proposal and they'll look at it and they'll say like construction administration, what is that? Like, I don't need you to do that. Like I'll deal with the contractor right? because they think that it is like some sort of kind of administrative fee, but yeah. I really think that like there an is, add-on. yeah, I think there's a lot of value to that. And I wonder if, like, as a profession, we are not clearly explaining to clients why that is, um, why that's important. And then in uh, in this particular case, it's I think that architects are kind of stepping back from it because so many clients have kind of said we don't want that, so we're kind of maybe forgetting about it or or just um, yeah. pushing it off. Yeah, or the client will say like, well, architect X, you know offered to do like hand me over the plans for X amount of money like mm. you guys can't or like our fee isn't competing with that because we've seemingly tacked on <laughs> so many additional phases but like I think I I mean yeah I guess I I hope people or we, we need to find a way to talk to people about what the value of it is and and why it's important yeah yeah and I think uh, you know thinking about it too from the perspective of a, of a contract and, and everything I think we've talked about standard of care before on the show and so, like, this is the, like, legal bar that architects must clear um, to not be considered professionally negligent and therefore liable, um, which is basically a pretty loose standard. It says you have to uh, do what any reasonable architect in the same context would have done or something along those lines. It's a very kind of, like, opaque language. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it does end up being fairly robust, um, even if vague, uh, when it when things uh, unfortunately hit the courts. Um, but yeah, I, you know, the question also is about scope of work as defined in the contract, right? So um, and in, in Chicago, porches occupy this kind of weird space as being their own thing, mm -hmm. like by the statutes of the code. Um, and a lot of times they'll have to be, uh, well, not a lot of times, but oftentimes they might need to be specifically written into a contract. Um, but also it might not have, uh, ignoring it completely, um, might have not passed the bar of the standard of care, um, which would be a real problem, um, as much as I like, don't want to <laughs> call out a fellow professional. <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think there's standard of care, and there's also like um, good customer service, yeah, <laughs> right? Like we- Being nice. Right, right, like there are legal things that we have to do, but then I think Craig and I also now, since it, like we work with people who may not have done a project with an architect mm. before, who are doing their first house addition, who are doing their first conversion of a building into their office or studio or whatever. And like with those people, it, I think it's helpful that we explain to them what we can do for them 
or what is available so they mm. can make kind of educated decisions on their own. So yeah, I don't know, customer service is maybe like <laughs> too tragic of a word, but like, yeah, like I, being a friendly, helpful human with yeah. whom, for better or worse, you're in a relationship with for two years, you know, or at the minimum probably, yeah. right? or a year at the minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, next question. What is the difference in expensive toilets and cheap <laughs> toilets? Hmm. Maybe that's a silly question, but it's also a serious question at the same time. I think I'm hitting the happy medium here. What's like the world's most expensive Just, toilet that yeah. you've used? Um, I'm actually like all of the uh, graphic standards toilet diagrams are like going through my mind right now, like different kinds of like flushes and swirls. And, like, yeah. Uh, but I think that uh, different swirls like the water flows different directions or oh. enters the toilet bowl at different uh, points. I see. Interesting. So like some, it only enters from the rim. Some there is like an extra <laughs> kind of push from the bottom. Uh, so I think that all of those things uh, change the cost. And I also think that part of it is uh, is brand recognition, just, mm. like, uh, um, just like in clothing or sunglasses <laughs> or whatever, uh, like Kohler toilets are more expensive than yeah. Pegasus or whatever but, they sell at Home Depot. But when you when you <laughs> mentioned uh, clothing, I immediately thought of like a Gucci, like a <laughs> Gucci, Gucci toilet. toilet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but and well, yeah. I mean, I think there are some toilets that have like weird, weird accessories. Right, you can get. Uh, Japanese toilets that have uh, like music integrated mm-hmm. and like many different types of buttons and like uh, a seat warmer and yeah, but but like <laughs> I guess I'm thinking specifically of like the difference between like a six hundred dollar toilet and like a hundred and fifty dollar uh, toilet because uh, we're talking mm. about the difference between like a yeah a Home Depot toilet <laughs> uh, and like the world's yeah. most complicated I, Soji Rushi <laughs> toilet yeah, or something, exactly right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well. But that's what, I mean, I guess I'm thinking if I'm walking down the aisle of Home Depot and I see a $150 toilet and a $400 toilet, I think that the difference is probably primarily brand and then also aesthetics. So, like, the $150 toilet is going to be, like, quite plain and straightforward, which is probably why it's the one I'm going to pick. Whereas, like, the Kohler may be, like, shaped different and may have uh, different, like, fluting or something around the top of it, like, different shapes, right? Yeah. Like kind of decorative trim. <laughs> I I honestly have not given a lot of thought to the difference between the four hundred and the six dollar toilet, the six hundred dollar toilet at Home Depot. I'm not sure I have additional thoughts to contribute though. Yeah. Though lately we have been encouraging um in like in our office we ha- we have interns this summer and we've been encouraging them to draw a very simple toilet that al- is almost like a symbol for a toilet rather than the like um uh, like Kohler, for example, will let you download an AutoCAD drawing of like their fanciest toilet. Uh. But we actually think it's bad to kind of like imply a specific toilet with a specific shape to clients before they've had a chance to like think about or pick out pictures. So we, we want them to draw like just two two ellipses with a rectangle <laughs> on the back and call it a day right. so that, you know, the like the the imaginative void of the toilet like remains open until we're further along in the project. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. Now I'm really going to have to do some sort of Home Depot analysis <laughs> of every toilet and see what the difference is. Because I'm, I'm sure that there is. There some are some nuanced differences about differences f- flow on, rate or something. Well, right? or on the like mechanics on the interior. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Like, is the, how often is the interior going to break or like you need to fix the chain or whatever? I'm sure well, there's some like rate of. For a while, dual flush toilets were like quite a bit more expensive than yeah. uh, like the regular kind of side handle, same volume flush. Um, 
but now I think those are coming down because they're becoming much more common. Like our landlord just renovated our bathroom and we got a dual flush toilet and I'm sure it was the same price as another one. Yeah, like I don't know if low flow fixtures are now becoming kind of more competitive for sustainability reasons or whatever. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good good question. (laughs) Yeah, right? Yeah. Toilets are interesting, folks. (laughs) Um, Okay. Here's the next question. Uh, Why do workers build a sample wall section on the side of a building site? I'm curious, at a construction site nearby, workers started building a completely finished 10-foot section of wall on the side, away from the main building. Now it's just sitting there. What purpose does it have? To make sure the architect didn't screw anything up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, facade mock-ups, like, for the same reason that you want to try on clothes before you purchase them. Like, uh, in some cases, it's about what it looks like on the site. In some cases, about whether it's detailed, right? In other cases, like, a client wants to... Well, like see it in full scale, so on and so. Like I think there's a variety of technical and aesthetic reasons that mm. people want to build uh, facade mock-ups. It's also, yeah. and it's also used for testing. So a lot of times they'll build the facade mock-up, and this is I think more in um, like kind of skyscraper curtain mm. walls rather than in like mock-ups for five-story buildings. But they'll they'll build a two or three-story mock-up of the curtain wall, and then they'll blast it with water to make sure to basically test all the oh, details. Yeah. That's super cool. Um, if or like you find, put in a wind tunnel. Yeah, Sorry. if you find those videos on, on YouTube, <laughs> they're pretty wild. Because, they, yeah, they do. They, they don't uh, – sometimes they put it in a wind tunnel, and sometimes they just get a giant fan and like a huge like hose <laughs> and they just well, like blast blast it it's pretty wild yeah and actually the uh the energy code that the city of chicago has adopted the international energy code now requires that all buildings have a blower door test to test the facade um leakage rate basically so yeah tell us about a blower door test what is that <laughs> it's putting a giant fan at the front door and sucking air out of the building and then testing the rate at which it flows out. Um, because as you are sucking air out of the building, um, and if you have a very leaky facade, the f- it'll be able to suck more air out. If it's a very tight facade, it will, um, it will be a lower rate. So there's some specific that you have to meet for the energy code. Um, So for bigger buildings, I think that the mock-up helps make sure that they will pass that test in the end. Um, With wood frame construction, I think you can go back and add caulk and tighten things up if you don't pass. But uh, for large commercial projects, it's important to make sure that you get it right before you do the whole thing. I think there's also um, on smaller buildings, like I worked on a project in uh, Cambridge, which was a addition to a historic building that was like built at the end of the 19th century. Mm. And the um, like local uh, board was concerned about like the view of this roof addition from the river or from the street. So part of the reason that they kind of built this mock-up and set it back from the front facade, like the amount that we had proposed to set it mm. back was so to see like what the visibility was like, was, was it as we claimed, like, you know, turning into a subtle glimmer on the roof, <laughs> on the roofscape, or was it in fact like feeling some, like some sort of like obtrusive hat and you can always like test in a rendering, but sometimes like there's no way to tell until somebody like stands up there with a thing that is that big and the color that you're saying it is and the type of glass that you've specced and so on. Yeah. 
Yeah. Interesting. I, yeah, I think uh, I know at, at the Pullman Monument, um, they have a giant, the, the, the Pullman factory is there and it burned down a number of years ago and they restored it. And they have a mock up there that's still on the site of uh, contractors. They were just testing if a modern day Mason could make a brick <laughs> arch to the same um, ability that uh, a, a standard Mason could have 120 years ago. And, and what was the result? They? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> I think they, they got it right on the second try and it might have been a different Mason. Um, but they, they had both. <laughs> they had both standing there. One was like a very lopsided <laughs> arch <laughs> and the other one was just fine. Mm. And of mm. course, the restoration down there looks great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we, re- we rarely make structural masonry arches anymore. Yeah. Right. Everything is steel reinforced. Yeah. Yeah. I, which I could talk about the specificities of that um, <laughs> for a long time. Um, but we'll move on <laughs> to another question. <laughs> um, a little into the weeds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that could get very... Uh, one day I will do an entire two-hour monologue on this show about <laughs> the politics of brick. Um, but Can we get Craig's grandpa on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would he, would Craig's <laughs> grandpa was a mason. <laughs> that would be great. You know I think the craziest thing he's told us is that they used to just throw the bricks up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, I guess we still well, see yeah. that sometimes. Yeah. 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 That was my dad's summer job is my grandpa would be on the uh, scaffolding and my dad would be on the ground throwing bricks up to him. Strong forearms. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I have another plumbing question. Um, a lot of like a lot of questions about like home improvement revolve around plumbing, <laughs> and I guess my question before we get to the other plumbing question is like, why do you guys think that is? I guess it's like, because I think I know actually yeah. exactly why it is because when plumbing breaks, it's a disaster, right? Yeah, because like <laughs> things are leaking or like there is sewage backing up in your basement. If like the electric stops working, you blow a breaker or like. Uh, light doesn't work yeah and it, it isn't as um severe of a, a or like as much of a catastrophe i guess yeah well and like not as weirdly opaque right because like <laughs> on some level we're all used to having like a phone charger with a cord coming out of it so mm. we can like imagine how electricity is getting from places but plumbing like you know it's not just like there's this open pipe thing mm. you have like all these weird receptacles and like who, who knows <laughs> what's going on back there um which but i guess speaking about the relationship between plumbing and electricity um i accidentally dropped several batteries down the bathroom sink <laughs> 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 uh, is this dangerous i don't want my neighbors in the building uh, to be electrocuted or have any other problems with their plumbing well I think with a battery, it's uh, not a problem. But the first thing you should do is go underneath the sink, and there's something called a trap, which is a U-shaped piece of pipe that you can take off, and anything that you drop down the drain should be in that U-shaped piece of pipe. Yeah. Easy. Especially something as heavy as a battery. <laughs> yeah. Most, mostly my question is, why are you using batteries over the oh, sink? Oh, I can totally imagine. Like, your electric toothbrush, your electric razor, yes. like, your Clarisonic mm. face exfoliator. Like, you are just... Whatever. I, I have one of this. <laughs> you're just changing batteries, and then, you know, like, your dog surprises you or something, and it's all over. Yeah. 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 Great. So, no problems. Check that P-trap. Um, yeah. Okay, next question. 
Have we burned through all your questions, Keeper? No, be do the it. First like, do I've got a whole page of <laughs> questions. I always get questions on Stack. We can talk more about the plumbing trap and that is actually not just there for your convenience, but is there so that there is uh, constantly water in the pipes. Uh, preventing sewer gas from backing up into your house. Yeah. So it's multi-purpose. It is. Yeah, because it, 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 well, as, as you described, it's a, it's an inverted U. So there's always um, some it, is it is a regular, regular U. U. Oh, you're right. An <laughs> inverted U would be like. Yeah, you're totally right. It is just a normal <laughs> U. Um, but I, I guess I just think about it as inverted because I'm like looking like down. Cause, yeah, because whenever you have to fix one, you're under the sink <laughs> looking up at it. <laughs> you are inverted, yes, yeah, not yeah. the you. Yes. <laughs> Precisely, yeah. But th- that way water always stays in there. Um, yeah. Um, all right. Here's, here's uh, another question. Why do architects all write the same? Seriously, do you spend a semester just learning handwriting? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I don't know. I spent a semester lettering six by eight note cards, and then I had to letter two 11 by 17 like magazine layouts on my really? drafting board. Really? Oh, wow. I didn't have to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to, but I had to take uh, do like a month of lettering, but it was in like high school, like vocational drafting. When mm-hmm. I got to architecture school, there was nothing. My oh, yeah, second yeah. semester, first year architecture professor was a man named Bill Shell. That his claim to fame was he worked for Mies for quite a while, uh. and that was what he wanted us doing in his class was <laughs> drawing letters on our drafting board. Yeah. Oh, it's true. In high school, in like I also went to like tech shop school in high school, and we had to do lettering and drafting class, but it was with a stencil. Oh, ours was stencil-free. Oh, yeah. So proof, proof that I am, like, you know, of a generation of slackers filled with shortcuts. And that's probably why my handwriting isn't as nice as your both of your guys's. I don't know if but. I have particularly nice handwriting, but it is very architect-y. Yeah. Uh, it is all caps. Um, well, maybe yeah. we should say, like, that type of writing in all caps makes it easier to read small lettering on a drawing, like a mixed-case yeah. font if you're reading in a book or something, makes it easier to read. You can read more quickly. But I think on a small drawing with like kind of small text, all caps that are uh, like fairly evenly tracked uh, is more legible. Yeah. So that's why like architects uh, historically kind of like wrote like that on drawing sets. And I mean, I think that's changing a little bit now, but um, that's the reason why. Well, and because your drawing sets are a legal document, they have to be uh, clear so that the contractor can read them. and before we could easily print 24 by 36 sheets of paper, you were drawing them all by by hand and it had to be clear and legible. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's a good, it's nice it's nice to know that there's like a reason for, for <laughs> these things. I think most times you find there is. Uh, well, when, when we were working together uh, <laughs> on, on like, you know, we, Craig and I worked on this project at a firm we used to work for and I, I like we made a big, we really wanted to do mixed case on the drawing titles because I actually think like a graphic design, like in terms of like a slightly larger typeface, it is more, it's actually easier to read. It can be easier to read. And then like the kind of um, like wise Yoda of architectural techniques there really kind of fought us on it. And I think in the end, we went with all caps. We lost that battle. We won the battle with... (laughs) We won the battle with one technical advisor, and then it, we like went for a month, and then like suddenly everyone was mad about it again, and we had to go back and change all of them. Yeah. But in in the age of uh, digital drawing, and that everything is uh, is 
computer typeface. Like there, I think there's very little reason to still write in all caps. Mm. Yeah. So I well, okay, yeah. <laughs> Maybe this is getting too into the weeds. <laughs> no, but like, no, I think people. I think it. I think people will tell you that like smaller at smaller font sizes, what a uh, mixed case can be more difficult. But in our case, it was on the sheet title, which I think was actually a bigger font size. So there's no reason except for gnarly tradition and, you know, people, yeah. people who felt strongly about aesthetics of such things, well, but without I, being interested in thinking about change. I actually think <laughs> at that moment, you and I felt more strongly about kind of fighting the tradition of the firm yes. rather than like really the aesthetics of the text. Yeah. But yeah. I, at some point we didn't actually care about it anymore, <laughs> but we had just like gone so deep into like battling on this one issue that we were like, if we can't change on this, we can't change on anything. And like, none of us will move forward in this field, you know, like we must, yeah, yeah, yeah this one thing. It's a very yeah. romantic story. Us and some lowercase font against the world. <laughs> <laughs> we we did design some of our own symbols on that side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think maybe our hourly um, efficiency was not really excellent. <laughs> That's a story for another day. <laughs> sure. Um, okay. Shall we move on to the next question? Sure. <laughs> um, how do you find floor plans for existing houses? You don't find them, you make them. Well, it depends on if it's a famous house, like the Roby house, you can go to the library and find a book on Frank Lloyd, right? Or you could Google, but I, whoever this is, yes. I encourage them to go find a book. Uh, but if you, it is not a famous house, well, yeah. you can draw them. In most cases, like when we take on a new job in an existing building, we have to go and measure it yeah. uh, in order to make the drawings. Uh, but many cities hold archives of past permits. So if you are looking at buildings, even if they're not famous, there may be uh, archives of permitted drawings. But that does not always equate what was built, and rarely are there as-built drawings for like yeah. building yeah. X out on the street. So, yeah. and especially if a building's been around for a hundred years, even if you yeah. can find original plans, it's been modified yeah, yeah. a thousand times without a permit, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I also second, uh, if it's a famous house and you're asking because you're an architecture student, mm. then, yeah, go to the library um, and and not Google. Um, there's specifically a site, and I won't call it out by name, but it rhymes with break gildings, uh, <laughs> 1000.com, I think. What? Um, that, uh, yeah, has the worst plans, and every time I have a student bring me one, I cry a little inside. Um but uh, yeah, okay, next question. <laughs> Hello, uh, I'm planning on designing my own house. Uh, well, I know a little bit about floor planning, but I don't know the standard thickness of a wall. Hmm. Well, a, it depends what kind of construction you're doing, but assuming you're doing wood frame construction, there is a three and a half inch two by four, and that probably has a five eighth inch piece of or sheet of drywall on each side of it. For an interior wall. Yeah. So if you're just sketching, I think you can draw a six-inch interior wall. But I guess I would say perhaps this is a moment to question whether this person <laughs> does or does not want traditional wood framing and chipboard on their walls. You right. know, there are many other types of walls with many different thicknesses. Maybe the more holistic answer is to go look at some walls that are similar to the walls that you would like to have in your house, and then you can measure them. Or maybe the even better answer is <laughs> go to... Uh, many online resources and find an architect. Mm. Yeah. 
I think that is a great answer. <laughs> but I think if you kind of like look at walls on your own, that is yeah. a useful thing to do before you meet with your architect. So you can say, hey, I yeah. saw this great steel stud wall that had this, you know, like beautiful perforated something, something. Yeah. I'd like to have that, not your typical, not ye typical like wood frame. Yeah. Well, and I suppose if I had a client, too, who really wanted to be very hands-on, I would appreciate if they did try to, like, sketch something instead of me having to try to read their mind. Um, Mm. But um, I don't know. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Uh, What lock can I use to make sure my two toddlers don't get outdoors? I live in an apartment that has a glass sliding door in back as a back door. My two toddlers know how to lift the handle, unlock, and open it now. What can I do to prevent this? Uh, sit your toddlers down and have a talk with them that they are not allowed to yeah. unlock the door. Uh, user error, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I think this is a, a, a human education issue, not an architectural issue. Yeah, there there are things you can get for sliding doors that go in between the the inside panel and the door frames for yeah. so that because old sliding doors could be lifted off their lock. Um, so it's like a. Uh, some sort of security measure. Maybe they could get one of those to put up high on the door. Yeah. I, and I was thinking too with like regular doors that um, if, if you did have a standard door, you wouldn't want to get one that had a keyed lock on both sides because that's a major fire hazard. And which, against code. And against code, which is arguably, <laughs> yeah, fire uh, and not being able to leave from it is um, – um, would also not be good for your toddlers. Oh, that's grim. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Ed- educate the toddlers. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, uh, we, yeah, we only have one minute, and I don't want to end on that grim <laughs> note. Uh, um, so, d- so dark. Yeah, yeah. Here's a fun question. Why do architects wear all black? Um, I don't know the answer, actually. Oh, sorry. Now there's an awkward pause. I'm, really <laughs> left. I'm not sure. I mean, I think, like, a long time ago... I. I don't know, maybe you might, like, spill some ink on your black... That's the worst answer. That's so functional. You no, tell me. No, but it's probably that, right? There's yeah. got, there's, there's, there's got to be a functional reason. And now it's, like, maybe, like, escaped into the world of dubious aesthetics, but... Yeah, I mean, I think for uh, Craig and I prefer not to choose clothes to wear. So, yeah. like, we just... All our clothes try to look the same <laughs> as much as possible. Yes, right, because you're spending too much time in the studio drawing. <laughs> yeah. The right amount yeah, of time. Yeah, to be able to pick out some clothes. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. the right amount of time. Uh, well, I think that's a good place to end it. Anne and Craig, thank you, um, and we'll see you again back in the studio in a month. Big thanks to Jamie Trecker, our producer, who's with us every month these days. Um, And that's been the show. It'll go up as a podcast soon. And um, see you all next month. Thanks. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at bldgsonair or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes. 